0: Sermon Podcast of Antioch Church in Colorado Springs. If you've been impacted by this ministry and would like to support the work we're doing in Colorado Springs, you can give online at our website, Antiochcos.com. We hope that the Lord ministers to you through this message. Well, good morning, Antioch. Good morning, thank you. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. He is risen indeed and that is why we gather. That is why any of this matters because Christ has risen and we celebrate that today. Um, As you can see this is going to be a little bit different from normal. We went through a season where we were doing these interviews and and uh, question asking and conversations. We went through a season about a year ago where we did them a lot and we haven't recently Uh, but today we're Hitting a very specific topic with a obviously a very specific person here um, who happens to be an actual expert on this. I'm gonna see if I can't make him <laughs> blush. <clears throat> but before we get there, I just I have one announcement and then I want to set up the, the message for today. And that is in two weeks, we begin Advent, December 2nd. So tomorrow I will be sending out a churchwide email to all of you with some resources and things that can help you prepare for Advent. I know some of you like to purchase Advent reads, Advent calendars, things like that. So I'm going to send out an email so that you have ample time to prepare. And also, we have uh, some devotionals that we have that we are going to give for free but I believe we have 75, and we're not going to do it this week. We're going to do the next week, and it will be first come, first serve. And, and so if you're interested in that, it's a daily devotional for the course of Advent. Uh, if you are interested, we will have a table in the back next week. And I would ask that at least at first... We just do one per family until next week, and then after that, on the second, if there are still some left over, then we can we can take them for husbands and wives or whatnot. So Advent is coming, and I am excited it 's one of my favorite seasons of the year. So if you are new with us or if you 've missed a couple of weeks recently we 're in the middle actually we 're almost at the end of a series called The Ancient Future Church where we're talking about the role, the mission, the purpose of the church. But then a couple of weeks ago, Pastor Jade preached a message on membership and belonging to a local body where we made a significant turn from the church universal, the big concepts about the church, to local church, where we're speaking about practices of the local church, and we're specifically highlighting practices that we feel need emphasis for Antioch Church. So this morning, we're going to be talking about baptism and the Lord's Supper. And this could have very well fit in the beginning half of the series. But when we found out Dr. Green was going to be here, uh, he was presenting a paper at a conference up in Denver. And we put this week with him because we believe that he can speak to this issue as good as anyone. So it's not an issue. I shouldn't call it an issue. (laughs) Baptism is not an issue, right? It's a practice. It's a practice of the church. So today we will be discussing baptism and the Lord's Supper, and obviously, I'm going to be asking Dr. Green some questions, but if you're not, if you've missed one of the other two times that he's been here, he is a professor, and has been a church planter, and a pastor, and has a real heart for the church, but Dr. Green uh, was raised, I won't tell his whole story here, he can do that much better than I can, but he is a Pentecostal scholar, who for his PhD research, researched the table from a Pentecostal perspective. So he has spent hundreds and hundreds of hours researching and thinking about this topic, which is why we thought today would be a great day for him to enlighten us and bring us all up to speed on two of the practices where we are very passionate about, but we have not been very educated on. So Dr. Green, thank you for being with us.
1: Absolutely. Thank you.
0: Is your, can you guys hear him? Is his mic good? It's on. Excellent. That's wonderful. I'll well, try he'll, to be louder. He'll just speak like you're speaking to uh, Emery. Okay. okay? No, five you don't year old. want that. We don't want <laughs> that. Okay. <clears throat> but I'd like to kick us off uh, by asking you, so as a scholar in your PhD research, you selected this topic, and I don't believe it was arbitrary. So what was it as a Pentecostal that led you to research the table? Why was that important to you, and why is it necessary?
1: I began as a pastoral concern. So I had a mentor I met with regularly as I was planning the church. And early on in the church plant, he asked me how often we did the Lord's Supper. And I said, never. (laughs) And he said, you should do it every week so that whatever you're preaching about, you can tie it to the table and make sure that you're talking about the gospel every week and not just good advice. And so I did it. And I didn't know what I was doing exactly. And I'm embarrassed now about some of the things I said and did then. But we moved to doing it every week. Just I thought that was good advice. So not long after that, I started my Ph.D. work. And I made a proposal to talk about the experience of the absence of God. And my eventual supervisor said, you can't write about this. Don't do it. What else do you care about? And I said, well, I'd like to know more about this Lord's Supper that I'm doing every week (laughs) and that's how it began and when I started to research it um, it it really blew open not only my own understanding of God and how God works in the world but revolutionized our church too and even though I'm no longer there as pastor they continue to do the Lord's Supper every week and I think if you were to catch any of those people who've been with us for a long long time they would talk about that season as the season which we really became a Mm -hmm. community in an, not just a group of people who met together to meet Jesus, but a body, a true community. So I think I'm really grateful for it. the advice that man gave me and the, the res- research I was able to do to kind of deepen and widen my understanding of why we do this practice and what it means. Wow.
0: So as many of us in the room may have grown up as Pentecostal or Charismatics, quote, quote unquote, um, but at least this church, we, we do claim to be a charismatic people. And this is increasingly more important among charismatic churches, as you are well aware of. But our history has not always been anchored in the table or, or really any sacraments at all. Um, what specifically about this stream of the church do you think, uh, why do we need this practice and these two practices so much, specifically as a Pentecostal that can speak to
1: our stream? Well, I think the first and most obvious answer is Jesus gave them to us and told us to do them. And and that's kind of non-negotiable. I was preaching once about Jesus teaching and some man in the congregation stood up and interrupted to say that he really had a problem with Jesus teaching about divorce. And our response was, I'm sorry? I don't know what to say to you. I mean, Jesus' teachings are kind of non-negotiable, right? I, don't, I mean, he's the Lord, after all. So in some ways, it's just that obvious, right? He, he said, baptize, and he said, this is, this is in remembrance of me. Do it often, right? Do it as often as, as you can. So I think that's the most obvious answer. I think the fact is, though, the more I, I did my research, the more I found out that Pentecostal tradition did begin with a very deep concern for baptism of the Lord's Supper. And that's something many of our churches lost over the to- over time, but it, it was there at the beginning. And a huge chunk of my dissertation and the book that came out of it is devoted to telling the stories of those early Pentecostals, so from early 1900s to mid-1900s, and how often they were practicing the Lord's Supper, and, and many times doing it as often as they gathered together, and then testimonies of healing or transformation taking place around around the table in visions of Jesus serving the the table uh, serving the the elements to them so our it is a part of our history somewhere in the, in the mid 50s that starts to wane and and by the time i was a child that was pretty much gone for most of our churches but that's it is it is a part of our history and of course it's all it's a part of the larger church's history too right from the very beginning right that we we know that some of the earliest Christians in Rome were mocked for being cannibals because of their frequent taking of the Lord's Supper and saying that this is his body and this is his blood. So in the tabloids of Rome in the first century, they're making fun of Christians as cannibals because of their practice of the Lord's Table. So it's, it's prevalent all the way through the church's history and it was prevalent in our own history and then somewhere along the way we lost touch with it. And I think the primary reason we lost touch with it was that we were already suspicious about ritualism, about dead works of dead liturgies. But I think the primary push was we no longer understood what it was for and we were trying to make sure that people felt comfortable in our churches, that people... Didn't that, that we lowered the bar as as much as we could so that newcomers could come in, and the emphasis was on getting as many people into the church as, as you could, and getting as many as those people to make a commitment to Jesus as you could. And these things, these practices, like the Lord's t- table, the confession of the of the creed, the praying of the Lord's prayer, all of these things were already sus- suspected to be too ritualistic, but then they became troublesome for. Make, it made it difficult for newcomers to, to kind of acclimate to what was happening in the church. And so I think we, we started rejecting them for that, for that reason. And if you, if you visit a lot of churches and ask them about when did they take the communion table out of their sanctuary, the reason most of them did is because they didn't, want, they didn't have the logistics and the time they didn't, they didn't want to bother with the logistics or take the time to do it every week. And so slowly it just became less and less of a practice. So a lot of it was just practical concern, not theological concern. So before we jump
0: into the, the more tactical and theological stuff about baptism and then the supper in particular, I, just, I know so many of the people in this congregation um, have come from a variety of backgrounds. And there may be some people here, that are, are, they understand conceptually that they should be open to these things. Right. But because of their history, family experiences, childhood church experiences that feel or seem negative or whatever for a number of reasons, um, it's still very difficult to participate with these practices. And maybe for some of the reasons that you just explained, that the church moved away in the 50s. Yeah, yeah. So what would you say to those people?
1: Well, I do think, I mean, we all have our own stories, right? And and most of us, if we've been in church since we were young, we have f- stories of, of pain around the way that worship took place. You know, some pastor who failed us or some way of worship that was kind of unhelpful for us or destructive. But I don't think we should reject the practices of, of baptism in the Lord's Supper because in some places they've become ritualistic. And I do think they have been. I mean, I think there are places where, the liturgy is dead in the sense that, you know, there's no life in the way that they're performing it. But I don't think we should reject it for that reason. And I mean, I'm a Pentecostal a charismatic. I, I meet people all the time who've rejected the work of the spirit and the gifts of the spirit because they've seen them abused. And I, I think that's foolish too. I think it would be just as bad to reject prophecy or words of wisdom or dreams and visions or prayer, prayer language, because you've seen abuses as it is to reject baptism in the Lord's table because you've seen abuses. I mean, it's that old cliche, right? Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? And that, I think a lot of our churches have, have done that, especially where you have people who have a background in, in high church tradition, so Roman Catholic or Orthodox or, or Lutheran or Anglican, where they've seen it, go wrong. They've seen it practiced in ways that that aren't filled with the love of Jesus and love of people. And I've no doubt that that happens, right? Mm -hmm. Just like I know there are charismatic churches where crazy things happen, where people are out of their minds and doing (laughs) stupid things and saying Jesus told them to do it, right? Um, But I wouldn't say that Jesus doesn't speak to us or that the Spirit's not moving or that the gifts of the Spirit aren't for today just because there are people who've abused it. So I think what we want is to avoid the extremes and to to avoid ritualism, Mm -hmm. but we want to take these practices that Jesus has given us and practice them as faithfully as we can, just like we want to keep the gifts of the spirit alive or prayer language alive, whatever the case might be, as charismatics.
0: Mm -hmm. I think that is an incredibly helpful and challenging response. I know to me, this has been part of my journey just the last couple of years, which, oddly enough, uh, was started with your book. Um, I'm one of the five people that read your <laughs> Two, dissertation. Right, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Two of which were my parents. Yeah. <laughs> I'm still trying to convince his wife to read right, it. Right, exactly. Pretty, yeah.
1: um, Speaking but, of that, my, yes. my wife and my kids are at Disney, so my phone is blowing up right now with pictures of Animal Kingdom.
0: <laughs> Send them Winter Wonderland. Yes, yeah, exactly, I will. Uh, but I know that that is, that is my story, and... Moving uh, from an Assembly of God Church and and then Church of God Church for some of my years in high school, which they're incredibly similar, into a more charismatic Word of Faith uh, experiences right after college, where I worked at ORU, many of you know that. And then now into this, where we're doing our best to be faithful to all of the things that God has called us to, which we very much believe our baptism and the Lord's table are central and included in that. I know that my journey has been one of having to go back and rethink some things and to acknowledge that certain things that I either picked up or was taught or experienced as, as a young adult and a, a young person were just not, not right about these things. And I just want to validate that for many of you, that process may be happening and that's okay. And you don't have to have it all figured out to participate in the table. Um, because really none of us do. So let's get into baptism a little bit. I'm just going to ask a really generic question because I think as evangelicals, we've been told very little about what's actually happening at baptism. Right. So what is happening when someone is
1: baptized? Yeah, so I think the, the New Testament is filled with these incredible claims about what's happening at baptism most of which we we never notice because we don't think about baptism as that important or that transformative. And, and a lot of times it's because we're reacting against what we believe other people are saying about baptism. So how many of you have heard the idea that baptism saves us and we don't believe that? Raise your hand if you've heard some, that kind of thing, right? Nobody actually believes that baptism saves us. Now, you might run into someone who says, that's what my church teaches. And you should smile and say, no, they don't, because no, no true theologian from any Christian tradition would say that baptism saves you. N- not a Roman Catholic, not a Lutheran, no one would say that. They would say that God saves you, and that he's giving you this practice of baptism as the way in which that salvation comes to bear on you, right? So God is the Savior, not the act of baptism, but God has given us baptism to signify and embody the way in which he is saving us, right? And what's important about baptism... Uh, in the, in the New Testament is that there are a whole range of images that are used for what God is doing there. So for instance, in, in Titus three, which let's look there real quick. Just let me, I'll read a few scriptures just so you can get a, a feel. Just, for just so it. this is a, a message. Right, exactly. Biblical and not just, you know, me talking about what I think. <laughs> Titus three, which this is a, this is a passage of scripture that we, we probably don't know very well, but I want you to see what's said about about baptism, Then we'll, we'll go to a couple other passages. Um, I won't talk about all the ones in the New Testament that talk about baptism, but I'll give you a feel for how much it is, how prevalent it is in the New Testament and how much is being claimed about baptism. So Titus 3, talking. To, let's just start in verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, despicable, hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of any works of righteousness that we have done, had done, but according to his mercy through the water of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. So this image that the writer uses for how God saves us is this image of washing. The the Greek word is actually washing, like bathing. So one of the images that scripture will use over and over again is baptism is a washing away. It's just like a bath. You take a bath to clean yourself, to, to wash the day off of you, right? That's the New Testament. One of the ways the New Testament will again and again talk about that, talk about baptism, is as a washing. In, in Ephesians, we get the same kind of image, but specifically tied to a bride, a bride who's preparing to go and spend the night with her, with her groom. She washes her body to prepare not only to cleanse herself but to prepare herself for what's about to come for the intimacy that's about to come so one of the images in the new testament is just baptism is a bath you take a bath whenever you need to cleanse something off of you and to get ready for something that's important Mm -hmm. right so if you're going out for your 25th anniversary dinner you take a bath and if you're not taking a bath trust me your wife wants you to take a bath right clean yourself right and and your husband wants you to as well. I probably don't need to say that to no, the women, but not. still, right? So one of the images the New Testament uses is take a bath. And this is what God does to us, right? He washes away the filth and cleanses us for this intimacy, right? So that's just one image. Another image that's used is of, a wa- of water breaking at birth. So in John 3, when Jesus and, and Nicodemus are talking, this is what Jesus says. He, you must be born of water and of spirit when he's talking about being born again, born anew. And Nicodemus, remember, asked that dull-minded question, do I have to enter into my mother's womb again? What a strange response for a bright man. Said yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's what I mean, right? You should have been sarcastic about it. But so another way that the New Testament will talk about baptism is, is it's the moment that the water breaks and you are born again, right? So it's associating that moment. And I mean, my wife has had three kids. I've been there for all of those moments when, nice when yes, thankfully, <laughs> that the the birth begins, the water breaks, and now we're, we're into the real work, right? She is. I'm there to not cause trouble while, <laughs> while she does it. Although I'm more panicked than she is every time. Like, it's, I'm more of an anxious person. But still, baptism is water breaking. It's a moment of birth. That's another image that you see in the New Testament. Another and perhaps my favorite one, at least today, my favorite one, is the image of purifying ritual. So look at Hebrews 10. Let me show you this passage. I've got to find It's verse. Let's start in verse 19. Therefore, my friends, since we have confidence to enter the sanctuary by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us approach with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And so this is is clearly a reference to baptism. Their bodies are washed with pure water. But the image he uses is of sprinkling. It's not to say that the method for baptism is sprinkling, but it's to say that in baptism we're recalling Israel's practices of sprinkling. So you can see this first in Numbers 19, which is the priest would take holy water, pure water, and sprinkle it on impure people or impure things as a sign that God was sanctifying them, as God was cleansing them. So one of the ways the New Testament will talk about, as you see here in Hebrews 10, we will talk about baptism, is it's like the rituals that God gave Israel, and and yet it's, it's new practice, but has that same power, that same power of sprinkling and making pure. So this idea that the waters of baptism are holy because they make us holy. They, they sprinkle away the impurity. And this is usually tied to sexual um, the, the kind of the way in which in Israel's in Israel's law sexual acts could make you impure and that the sprinkling of holy water would make you pure again. That's what's being said here in Hebrews 10, that we are sprinkled and we, we're no longer like we were. We're not impure anymore. Now we're pure and that's why we can come boldly into the presence of God. Right? So one way that baptism is understood in the New Testament is you come to the water, you're impure God sprinkles pure water on you and now you can enter into the presence of God with absolute boldness, right? You're, you're, you are righted for coming into the presence of God. And you see this in Ezekiel where prophesying the new covenant, Ezekiel says, God, speaking on God's behalf, I will sprinkle you with new water and you will be made new. Your heart of stone will become a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit in you, right? So these are, all of these images, and there, and there are a lot, of, a lot of others that may or may not come up as we're talk, talking today, but the New Testament has all of these various ways of talking about what baptism is because the reality is so great that you have to talk about it with different metaphors to start to get at everything it is. Right. So it's, it's ritual washing, it's a bath like we a normal bath, it is the breaking of water, and so on and so on and so on. Like there are other images too, but that, that gives you a taste for the ways in which the New Testament wants to talk about what baptism does for us.
0: So one thing that I know is a question that has come up a lot in church and with all of the metaphors that are given to us that you just elaborated on, uh, I, it is increasingly curious to me, and I've heard you talk about this before, so I kind of know the answer, but I want them to hear. So why was Jesus baptized?
1: Right. Because yeah. he was
0: not impure in the first
1: place. Right. He didn't need to be born again. Right. Jesus' baptism is is the, obviously the paradigmatic baptism. And the ancient church, the church fathers would say, Jesus was baptized not because he needed to be made holy, but because the rite of baptism needed to be made holy. Yeah. So he enters into the practice to show us that this is holy for us. Like it, he, He's not cleansed by the water. He makes the water holy. Right? So, and this, this is the church's wisdom on, on what baptism means. But the other thing is, remember what happens is Jesus goes down into the water, and he, he's going down in the River Jordan. Now, what we know about Israel's history is that they too pass through these waters, right? But remember, when they pass through the waters, the the, the waters are opened up for them, right? They walk through on dry land. But Jesus goes down into the water, and he Bob Egblad has a has a has a book called "Reading the Bible with the Damned," and he talks about how what Jesus is doing there is he's going down like Pharaoh and his army went down into the sea rather than passing through on dry land because he's going down for everyone. He's going down not just for the righteous, but for the unrighteous. And this is the image that Paul picks up. So in Romans 6, Paul says, all of us who have been baptized were baptized into Christ's death. So baptism is also a death, right? It's, all, it's going down into the depths. But then Jesus comes up out of the water. And as those of you who know the gospels know, as soon as he comes up out of the water, The voice of the Father speaks and says, this is my son, and a dove settles on Jesus. Well, if you read the Old Testament, you know what that is. In the Old Testament, there is a moment where the waters recede, and a dove settles on new creation. So this is a sign, an embodiment, that Jesus is the new creation. This is the new world. It's happened. Jesus went down and washed, and with him went all died all of this evil, and he comes up, and he is the new the new, cre- new creation, and the dove settles on him as a sign that this is the beginning again. So again, that's just another metaphor that the New Testament uses to try to get at what all is in baptism. And then, as this is just a...
0: Uh, I don't know where this question is going to take us, but as Pentecostals and Charismatics, we use the language of spirit baptism. Yes. So how might these metaphors... Be related. Like, in what ways does baptism in water? Because the the church is well. I'm I'm just going to let you answer that question. I'm I'm not going to answer my question.
1: (laughs) No, please do. I'd love to hear what you think. I I think it's this can be a kind of difficult answer, but this is the way I would answer it. Right, and you get different answers from different folks, but they're wrong and I'm right. Let's just assume. (laughs) I think I really think this is what we have. So, in the New Testament always associates the coming of the Spirit with baptism. So, in every right. passage where the New Testament, like you must be born of water and of Spirit, right? We've been washed in the renewing power of the Holy Spirit in the Titus 3 passage, on and on. Like Ephesians 5, same thing. Wherever there is baptism, there is the Spirit. But Spirit baptism is another experience. It's not the same experience as being baptized in water. So, this is the way that I would want to talk about it, is that... When we are baptized, assuming that we are baptized in faith, right, that we, we are coming and we're giving our bodies to the Lord and receiving what he has for us, then we are filled with all the fullness of God. We, we have the spirit of God within us. What spirit baptism is, is a later experience, or I think better, later experiences, where the reality that happened to our baptism happens again for us and happens in ways that become demonstrative, that that let people around us know we have been filled with the Spirit, right? So what we move is not from emptiness to fullness or from partial to full. We move from fullness to fullness, right? So the New Testament, again and again, we'll talk about we go from glory to glory, from grace to grace, from faith to faith. So at at your water baptism, you are receiving the Spirit in full. You don't get like 10% of the Spirit or like, (laughs) it's not like, so in the church I grew up in, to make sense of this, they said that at water baptism, you receive spirit, lowercase s, whatever that would mean. And at spirit baptism, you receive the Holy Ghost, capital H, capital G. That's nonsense, right? That's not, that, doesn't even, that doesn't make sense, right? What we do, we receive the Holy Spirit at baptism, water baptism, in full. And then as we live our life with God, there will be moments when we move from fullness to fullness, and we are baptized in the Spirit again, right? So the, I, I think both of those are true. And we need to think about baptism. For Jesus, all of that happens at once, right? He comes up out of the water. The Spirit rests upon him. The Father's voice is spoken. But in the early church, we see that these things can happen separately too mm-hmm. and happen repeatedly where, right. you know, Luke will say that they were again filled with the Spirit, mm-hmm. right? And then what happens when they're filled with the Spirit now, in a lot of traditions, there's an emphasis on tongue speech. But in Acts, what happens is they proclaim what God has done. So speaking in tongues is about proclaiming to people who wouldn't hear you otherwise. So a lot of, a lot of, in some churches, this can be really legalistic, and it can end up leading you down a bad path. But the point of Luke's talking about speaking in tongues is that you prophesy to people in a way they can hear. So to know that you've been baptized in the spirit. It's not about did you or did you not speak in tongues in some legalistic way, but when the spirit is in you and fills you up, then you begin to proclaim the goodness of God to people in ways that they can hear it. Wow. And that's what is sign that the spirit is in you, right? That and that, So when you think about speaking in tongues, that might be what we think of when we think of speaking in tongues, but it might be broader than that too, mm-hmm. right? It, might, it can be uh, any the gift of tears, uh, the, a, a dance, a laugh. I mean, there are all kinds of ways in which you can communicate to people the goodness of God. Anything that you do to communicate the, 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 the goodness of God to people, that's the spirit filling you and empowering you to speak. And I, so I, I, don't, I don't want us to get lost in the legalistic right. aspects of Thank that, God. right? If that makes sense.
0: Yes, totally. And I, th- I hope this is helpful. If If any of us have been wrestling with early, you know, what we were taught in other traditions, or I have found that this is a very helpful way of understanding how these things are related, but how they are also distinct. And I love what you just said there about proclamation, uh, because that testifies to the early Pentecostals, that would say that spirit baptism is empowerment for witness and for yes. testifying and testimony. Yes. And so there are some ways of thinking about tongues and thinking, well, my private prayer language has nothing to do with that. But as we've spoken about it at Pentecost the last couple of years, that there is the miracle of who it's being proclaimed to, who is in their midst when that is happening. Right. And it is, it's an act of, of the, the spirit Coming down and saying, my church is of all tribes and all nations and all tongues so that they may hear. Anyways, um, I'd like to move uh, in the direction of the table now. So for one, maybe just answer the question. So why, why does it make sense at all for us to pair these two things, the table and baptism? And if it doesn't make sense, then you can tell me privately after service. <laughs> uh, but assuming it does make sense, um, and maybe just talk a little bit about what we mean by sacrament.
1: So to answer the, the last, I'm going to answer the last question first. So when we use the word sacrament, no one should be frightened off by that. All, all we mean by sacrament is that it's a sign that God uses to do what the sign signifies so it 's a sign that does what it signifies, so baptism is a washing, and what does God do? He washes us right Baptism is a going down under it 's going into the death of Christ, and God does that right so the sign it is do what is happening to you is what the sign says is happening to you so when we break the bread we 're talking about the breaking of christ 's body right or when we take the cup we're taking in the spirit of God right we the, these are these are signs, and what we're, what we're trusting is that while we're participating in these signs, God is doing to us spiritually what these things symbolize and signify, right? So that's, I think, what you think of as a sacrament. Okay. Then to answer your other question, I think usually this has been understood in the church as baptism is the sign that you belong to the community whose meal <clears throat> this is. So this meal is not just about you and Jesus or me and Jesus, This is about Jesus and his body. So like Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 will say, because there is one loaf, there is one body. Because there is one loaf, there is one body. Which tells you that when he was practicing communion with his communities, there was one loaf, and he used that to say, just like this one piece of bread is made out of all these different grains, Mm -hmm. you are one loaf. Right? You're all, that's, your lives are melded together like that, right? That Wherever you break the bread, it's happening to all of you because this is one reality. You are one body. You are one loaf. And so I think the connection would be baptism is where you publicly declare, I belong to this community. At this table is where you reaffirm that commitment. So one of the things that I think is really important about coming to the table is that you realize it's not just God saying something to you. It's not just God saying, this, this is my body, this is my blood for you. It's also about you saying something to God, primarily thanksgiving. Thank you, God, that you've given us your body and blood. But it's also you saying something to the people around you, which is because God has given himself to me and because I am thankful for that, I will be for you whatever you need me to be. Right. So it's a commitment to live in covenant. It's, a, it's like this is what Passover was for Israel. Right. It was a meal that not only remembered what God had done, not only thanked God for what God had done. It was not only God saying to Israel, I am the God who delivered you from Egypt, but it was also one Israelite saying to another, we're a family mm-hmm. and I have to be faithful to you. Right. I have to be faithful to you. So this is not just about God's faithfulness to us and our faithfulness to God. It's about our faithfulness to each other. And that's why we have to come soberly. Like Paul will say, you know, reflect on, on your motives, Reflect on your practice. Ask yourself, you know, am I participating in this in a worthy way? It's not about being worthy. Right. It's not about being the kind of sinless person. That's not it at all. It's are you partaking of this meal in a way that, that subverts the truth of it? Or do you come and take this meal and then mistreat the people around you? Then That's unworthy. It's unworthy of the meal because this is a meal about what God has done for you, how thankful you are to God for it, and what that means for your life with other people. So that taking it unworthily would mean I'm taking it as if I can have what Jesus has for me without being a servant to you. And Jesus won't allow that, right? He's not going to allow... He's not going to allow you to have his grace and his mercy if you won't extend grace and mercy to the person beside you, because you would you wouldn't understand his grace and mercy if he did, right? This right. is why in the Lord's prayer it's "forgive us as we forgive." It's not. I heard a preacher once, "Lord of Mercy," he said he said this. He said every time you forgive someone, God gives you a token. He literally said this, so that when you sin and you go to God, you can cash it in. Exactly. That's exactly what he said. I promise. It's exactly what he said. No, that's not it at all. Right? To be clear. To be clear. That's heresy, right? But what I do think is happening there is if you don't forgive, you haven't yet understood the forgiveness you've received. So he's not saying, I'm going to withhold forgiveness until you forgive. It's until you are the kind of person who forgives. You'll never understand what it means that I've forgiven you, right? So if you're the kind of person who comes to the table and takes the meal, but you don't want to live in the family, then you you don't understand what it is that has been given to you because what's been given to you is a family, right? And I think this is, this is what's so important about, and and so we should never keep someone from coming, but we should make sure that they know this is a family meal and this is this, we eat this together because we're reminding each other, not only of what God has done for us, but what we're going to do for each other. And like I said, this is what I think happened to our church that I planted, is when we started to focus on this meal, and not just what God was doing for us individually, but what God expected of us corporately, that's when I think we became a community. Uh, So we've been
0: participating in communion weekly for about two years, maybe a little longer at this point. Um, I'm going to ask a generic question, and then you can fill in all the gaps. You've already said some. But what is happening when we take this? How, how should we understand with all of the, we're remembering, we're committing to the family. There's also the aspect, of course, of looking ahead to the eschaton. But can you help us understand how there are different ways of emphasizing? So that's the first part of the question. And then the second, in what is happening, should we always feel something? Is there always a quote-unquote experience that should be attached and if we don't have that experience, does it mean anything? Does it mean we have we've done something wrong, or we've
1: come unworthily? Yeah. No. To the last, I'll answer your last question. That simple. I'm good no. at asking questions right. backwards. In back, exactly. Okay, yeah. <laughs> um, no, no, it's not at all a, a bad sign if you don't experience anything. I guess what I would say is, do you, when you sit down for a meal with your family, do you feel anything? I and mean, that's not the point, right? You don't you don't go have dinner with your family so you can have an experience. You have dinner with your family because you love your family, right? We eat this meal not because we think it's going to give us something else, right? I mean, I th- there's something really, I think, perverse about the idea that we only do the stuff God gives us to do if we get some kind of thrill out of it, right? I mean, imagine what, what would happen to my kids if I said, yeah, I, I, I can't come to your game on Saturday, son, because I don't really experience anything when I go I mean it's perverse. Right? I mean so no. No. I mean you don't come to church to get an experience. If you do, that's pornographic. Right? That's that's perverse. Don't do that. Stop it, right? You you come because that's who you are. Because this is who we are. We're a family. So you show up to eat the meal. Right? You show up to care for one another and to pray for one another. And a family acts like a family. They don't do that because they're going to get some experience from it. And when there is someone doing that, they don't stay in the family very long, right? And, and that's, so no, this is not about experience at all. But I do believe that there are things happening to you. And what's happening to us is God is making us a body. He's making us one loaf. And the more, this is, this is the irony. So in this, what we're symbolizing is the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. But we're symbolizing it with bread and with wine. And there are two levels that I want you to recognize. One is bread and wine are not things that God made, but things that we made with what God gave us. Right? So we don't bring raw wheat. I mean, maybe you do, but I don't think you should. Bring raw wheat and grapes. You bring wine and bread. So there's what God gave us, and then there's what we make with it. So part of thanksgiving to God is this is about letting God know, we know what you've given us and we are taking responsibility for it and we want to give back to you what we've made. Right? That's that's some of what we're we're saying when we come to the table. At the other level, so that's the first level. At the other level, it's the bread and the wine are about celebration. So here's here's the paradox that's at the heart of communion. His broken body and shed blood, which is about torture and death becomes for us the feast of bread and wine. So his death is paradoxically the source of our joy. So sometimes when we come to the table, the emphasis needs to be on the broken body and the shed blood. About, and we come soberly. And we come grieving that Jesus had to experience this, that Jesus had to undergo this kind of torture. But sometimes we come to the table, and it's not about the broken body and shed blood. It's about the bread and the wine. And we rejoice that our God is this God and that our God has worked in our lives in these ways. And so it's, that's the point of it, right? You don't do that for some other reason, right? That's what we do. We come and proclaim it. And this is the wisdom in what my mentor said to me that day. Like if every service we come, we're proclaiming his death, then we're proclaiming the gospel, right? So in, in a very real way, anyone who's here today, if we partake in this meal, you're hearing the gospel, whether you hear it from me or not you're hearing the gospel because this is about someone whose body was broken and his blood was shed for us that we might have bread and wine of joy, right? Mm-hmm. And that's, that's what we have to proclaim every week, right? That's the reason we come here, right? Not for an experience, but so that we can let the world know, listen, God has come in the flesh. His flesh was broken. His blood was poured out that you might know the joy of God. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's our message.
0: Man, what a beautiful message too. Absolutely. <clears throat> I've heard you talk before about in the Pentecostal church, the altar is, it kind of symbolizes um, the center of what we would say the kingdom or heaven meeting earth, and then the table is at the center of the altar. Yeah. And our job is to essentially be expanding the boundaries of the altar. Can you talk a little bit about that and how this is, um, in some ways, it is a missional activity in and of itself.
1: Yes, absolutely. So what I, what I, the way I would want to formulate it is this, the table is the center of the altar. So the altar is you know all of this space here at the front of the church around the table. And it's in the altar that we come to praise, to lament, to pray for one another, to pray for healing, to pray for deliverance, whatever it is. We lay hands on one another, anoint with oil. like we're, All of that prayer is happening around the, around the table in the altar. But I think if you don't keep the altar grounded to the table... Then it all comes it all becomes about your personal inward experience of God. And God didn't make us as spirits, He made us as human beings who are in spirited flesh. Right. And you you if your relationship with God becomes only about what's happening in your heart, then you're not really human. Because humans aren't hearts. Humans are embodied spirits, right? We're not we're not in and, and God created the world that way and he directed his his work that way for us and he expects that kind of response from us so one of the problems with when whenever an altar service drifts free of a communion table then it becomes all about the experience you have in the altar when the table is cut off from the altar then you lose sight of the ways in which god does want to break powerfully into our lives and where there is room for prophecy or deliverance or healing so what we need is the table is the center This is about Jesus. It's not about my experience in the altar. This is about Jesus. But because Jesus is the living one, he can work in the altar and does work in the altar. So the goal then is the table is always central, but the altar should be getting larger and larger and larger and larger. And if you're really faithful, the altar isn't just this space at the front of the church or this room. It starts to spread out through this whole city, right? The altar gets wider and wider and wider. And the goal would be for it to be as uh, to reach to the whole extent of the earth, right? That my glory will cover the earth like the waters cover the sea, right? That his, the altar should, be, and that's what we will have in the end, right? That Jesus is at the center and then the whole creation is the altar because that's the place where God has experienced. So the goal is not to have an altar service, but full stop, but to have an altar service that leads us back to Jesus and that then from Jesus, we go out to make the altar wider. Yes. That, that, that's, I think, I think that's where you start to integrate. So one of the ways I've said this is the altar is about the charismatic work of the spirit. The table is about the sacramental work of Christ. And if you're sacramental without being charismatic, you'll end up being ritualistic and it'll become all about the clergy. And you'll get superstitious, right? You'll you'll start to think there's something magical happening here. And that it depends upon Pastor Jonathan, right? Or Pastor Dan or Pastor Jade to do it for you. Right. But if you are charismatic without being sacramental, then you're you're going to end up being a loon. You're going to end up being crazy because it's going to become about your story instead of Jesus story. And that is inevitable. I've seen this happen over and over and over and over and over again. Churches that are charismatic and aren't sacramental are filled with crazy people because it's all about them and it's all about their experience of God. And it's all about they come to church for one reason, and that is so they enjoy it or they get to prophesy, or they get to sing, or they get to preach, or they, they get to do what matters, right? Mm-hmm. But when you realize that we're all here for this, this is why we're here, so that when we go out of here, we can take the table to, to the community, take take the altar to the, to the world. Then you start to realize that it, this keeps us grounded in his story, keeps me from being crazy, but the charismatic keeps me from forgetting that his story is my story too, right? That, that his story has taken me in. So I think we need a tight integration of the charismatic power work of the spirit and the sacramental work of Christ at the table, where he is saying, this is my body, this is my blood, and we're thanking him for it.
0: So as as a, ch- a series on the church, which is how this message and this conversation is situated, uh, inevitably there are still going to be a number of unanswered questions. You know, there are so many things that we didn't touch on, mediation, infant baptism, how there's just, all kinds of ways that the church has understood and frankly argued over these things, um, so what this is my last question, and then we're going to come to the table. but what should we agree on, and what is imperative that as a church we we be together on with these two things that that constitutes us as a church like what it, what are the the fringe things, and what do we need? To be central. Does that question make yeah. sense?
1: Yeah. Okay. I think okay. the first, and most important thing is we trust Jesus' wisdom. He gave us this, the baptism. He gave the baptism right, and he gave us the table, mm-hmm. and he said to do those things. So if you don't understand anything else, trust Jesus' wisdom. That he knew what he was doing, right? I mean, if he, if, if Jesus doesn't know what he's doing, then we're all in, in for a serious, serious set of problems. But <laughs> let's assume he did, right? If he said, go and baptize people, we should do that. Even if we don't fully grasp what it means, we should do that. And I think there's, there's a lie that keeps a lot of us from, from experiencing and enjoying what God has for us, is that we have, to all under, we have to understand it before we participate in it. But usually it works the other way around. You participate in it, and then you understand it. And what I would suggest is, and I think I saw this happen in my church as well, that it takes years of the practice before you start to get your mind around what it means. You have to do it for a while before you start to understand. And this is Jesus' ministry. He did things, then people asked him questions about those things, and then he taught about them. He did stuff nobody understood. They asked him, what are you doing? And then he would teach them, right? And so I think a lot of this is about trust Jesus' wisdom and baptize and take this communion meal every chance you have and pray for God to give you understanding. Pray for God to give you Wisdom and a revelation of what it is that's happening here, and I, I think and don't don't think that god 's work is dependent upon your understanding right there's no there's i don't have to understand it for God to be doing what God is doing right Thank god. and so this is this is where it, you, you don't want to i mean it's not that there isn't anything to understand I mean I think the Bible is filled with what God wants us to know about baptism and the lord's table, but that's not That doesn't have to come first. What comes first is Jesus told us to do some things and we're going to trust him. Right. Mm -hmm. And if we do that, if we can agree on that, at least to say, I don't know if I would say it that way. I don't know if I understand fully, but Jesus said to do these things. And so I'm going to trust that as we work out how to understand it, then I think you'll be fine. Like, I think, I think the problem becomes that we all have to understand it the same way before we ever do anything. And listen, that's just not going to happen. We're not going to get a group of 150, 300 people to agree on everything before we do anything, right? right? And that's not what Jesus told us to do. He didn't say, I'd like for you to do baptism if you can all understand and agree to do it a certain way. He just said, go and baptize, right? And he didn't say, you know, do this in remembrance of me if you can agree in terms of a theory of how it works, right? He said, do this. So for me, this is ultimately about trusting Jesus' wisdom, Mm. And knowing that he gave us these practices for reasons we may understand or may not understand, but he 's Jesus, and we love him, and we trust him, and we think he's wise.
0: we do think he's wise and what's what's funny inherent in that question is that part of the goal is that we agree at all anyways about this and mm-hmm. i, I don 't know that i don't know how much that is his goal that we right. agree on it to begin with. I think maybe our differentiated ideas about some of these things. Is what really can help us become a body. Some of the conversations, some of the frictions, some of what will be birthed in us as we learn to live together in the long haul of disagreement, yeah. might be
1: a beautiful practice. Absolutely, and think the a lot. Most disagreements between Christians are not necessary because they're just talking about. The same truth from different perspectives most of the time. Now, you have people like that preacher that said you get a token for every time you forgive someone. And that's just stupid, right? That, that's that's <laughs> wrong. That's not the truth from a different perspective. That's just wrong. But sometimes, I mean, think about what I already told you today about how the New Testament speaks of baptism. Is baptism a joining in Christ in his death? Yes. But is it also a joining in him in his resurrection? Yes. Is it also a bath that washes away our sins? Yes. Is it also a ritual sprinkling? Yes, right? So a lot of it is our differences are just we're seeing the same truth from a different place. And a lot of those, they, so they don't have to separate us. We can, if we get a large enough vision, we can say, oh, I see. Yeah, that's true in this way. And this is true in that way. And we then can agree. So a lot of disagreements are not necessary, right? And if you if you assume that, assume in good faith that the person who disagrees with you is seeing something true from their perspective, then it starts to ease the tension, right? And you can start to say, okay, now how is it true? And what are you seeing that I'm not seeing? And then we tell you what I'm seeing that you're not seeing, right? So I think there's a a real gift in that kind of disagreement. It's not to say that every disagreement is like that. Sometimes people are wrong, right? But not not as often as we think. Wow. Well, we're going to come to the table.
0: So I'd like to invite the communion attendants uh, to come forward. And Dr. Green is going to lead us in our receiving and partaking of the elements today and then we will sing the doxology and be dismissed but dr green thank you so much for sharing your time with us and obviously so so much study and time and energy has been invested for him to be able to do what he he has done with us this morning so you're a gift to us thank you thank you absolutely
1: stand with me if you will as the servers come what i what i would like to do today is let this let this the emphasis of this meal be on those who are not here when we are finished there will still be broken pieces of bread and cups of juice that weren't taken that should have been taken today. So when you come, I'm going to ask you to come after I've prayed and led us through that liturgy. I want you to come, take the bread, eat it here, drink the cup here. But as you're eating and drinking it, eat and drink in memory of those people who could be here, who aren't here, and who should be here. Not everybody should be here, but there are people who should be here who aren't. And instead of condemning them or judging them for that, let's let this meal be a moment of intercession. And if maybe some of them aren't here because they're sick, pray to that end if some of them aren't here because they're hurt pray to that end Right? if some of them aren't here because they think they've lost faith pray to that end but let's let this meal be about expanding the boundaries of the altar right we do this meal because on the same night that Jesus was betrayed by Judas he took the the bread and he broke it and he told his disciples this is my body and they didn't understand what he meant and we don't fully understand what he meant But we believe that in some mysterious way, he's giving us himself when we take this bread. And that same night, around that same table, he took the cup and he said, this is my blood. And it's shed for the forgiveness of of sins. We don't know how, we don't understand fully what he means, but we trust him. And we trust that when he says, this is his body and this is his blood given for us, that he was broken and his blood was shed for us. So when we come today, remember that Remember that he's broken not just for you but for the people who aren't here he's, his blood is shed not just for you but for the people who aren't here and you can receive that and it will nourish you it's, it's a little bit like manna Israel receives manna in the wilderness they have no idea what it is but it nourishes them so my prayer today for you and for the people who aren't here is that God will nourish you you won't know how but you will realize there's strength there you didn't have before. Holy Spirit, my prayer is that you will fall on this bread and this wine and on us as a community so that as we receive this, we become like Jesus. We receive his strength and we receive his wisdom and we receive his death and his life so that we might be drawn into intimacy with the Father and bring all of those around us into that same intimacy. We believe that these are your gifts for us. And that you've called us to be gifts to the world. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Come and receive. This is the feast of the Lord.
0: Thank you for listening to the Antioch Church Sermon of the Week. For more information about us, visit AntiochCOS.com.